0: Good afternoon, City Bible Church. It's really good to see you guys here on the Super Bowl Sunday. And uh, this is the true house of worship here today, and um, and because we worship our true and one and living God. Uh, we're going to be continuing on in our series called A, Tw- A First Century Faith for the 21st Century. And uh, this has been our series through Paul's epistle to the Roman Church we last looked at this in November. We took a month off during December to talk about uh, uh, the coming of Christ, the birth of Christ. In January, we talked about the role of the family, uh, having a godly family. And so now, uh, being in February, we're going to continue back where we left off in this series as we explore uh, the Holy Spirit's teaching through the Apostle Paul in the Epistle of Romans. If you understand the main theological biblical, church, uh, Christian spirituality themes in the book of Romans, then you're going to have a pretty good understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how, um, that's how big the, the book of Romans is in the life of a Christian. And so um, today, we're going to look at this passage here. Romans chapter 6, verse 15, all the way... Uh, ...to chapter 7, verse 25. That's the entire chapter of Romans chapter 7. We're going to do something a little bit different right now. Is um, I'm going to actually act, uh, have you open up your Bibles. Go ahead and do that right now. Look up the passage in your phone or open up your physical Bible... And we're going to take such a large chunk of scripture today. Uh, it's going to be a little bit different approach. We're actually not going to look at every single verse in these chapters. We're going to isolate four different themes law, sin, oops, uh, keep it there. Law, sin, gospel, and righteousness. Actually, go back perfect. Gospel and righteousness. There we go. And so, um, what I'd like you to do is I want you to go ahead and pull out your Bible and read this section of scripture. It's going to take you a couple of minutes. Romans chapter 6, verse 15, and all of chapter 7. We'll come back together, I'll pray, and then we'll look at some of these main theological themes that ground us in the Christian faith. So go ahead and do that right now, and uh, we'll give that a few minutes. (laughs) It's really good to sit here in quiet, in stillness, in church, to just read the Bible together. Uh, some of you may not have been reading during this time. I just assume you've committed <laughs> Romans 6 and 7 to memory already, which I commend you on top of that for those of you uh, that had already done that. Uh, <clears throat> and this is very important as we read through. These seminal chapters in the New Testament, Romans 6 and Romans 7, these, you know, a lot of times we think about the Christian faith as um, how can Jesus help me to live my best life now? Or we think Jesus is just my homeboy. Or we think, you know, the Christian faith is about me just being a good person, my kids getting good grades and staying out of trouble and um and be and making friends. There's some good. To some of that, but this sermon reminds us that really at the core of the Christian faith are these foundational truths, these foundational doctrines of law, sin, gospel, and righteousness that the apostle Paul is going to remind us about that anchor our Christian faith. That you must be clear on your understanding about these seminal Christian doctrines if You are to stand rightly before the Lord and you are to mature in the ways of Jesus Christ. And so uh, let me pray for our time and we'll go ahead and go into this. Fathers, we come together now. May you solidify these great truths to renew our minds, to encourage our hearts, to move us to disregard any falsities that are in our minds. And embrace the great truths that bring life, that uh, clarify who you are, Lord, and provide for us the way of salvation. May we be reminded during this time that uh, we are called yours because of the freedom that you have given to us in Christ Jesus to walk in newness of life, freed from the requirements of the law and the penalty of our sin. And so, Lord, would you renew us? Um, and mature us during this time through that. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we go ahead and talk about law, sin, gospel, and righteousness, I want to actually step outside of the Bible and compare how these four themes are being defined today outside the Bible, outside the kingdom of God, outside the church, how the themes of law, sin, gospel, and righteousness are actually defined in the minds of an unbelieving world. How would an unbelieving world today look at the term law, sin, gospel, and righteousness? And what does it look like for people today outside the kingdom of God to try and counterfeit these doctrines and live through them in their lives outside the kingdom of God? And so, for example, if we talk about law, like moral Law today, spiritual law. It's a great contrast to how many people live today because we live, many live a lawless life. People today have uh, defined the law, a moral law, in terms of their own individual standard. Well, I have my own truth. You have your own truth. Let's just live in harmony. I can discover the true truth. Because it lies within me. And I just have to discover that. That's my own law. We live in a time of anti-authoritarianism. We don't like the idea that someone is going to put down upon us some kind of moral law. We have a sense of every other thing that we hear about, we think about in terms of authority, is in some way a conspiracy theory. And so, outside the kingdom of God, when we think about the idea of law and of moral law, we are living in a time when people reject that and want to create their own law. What about the word sin in an unbelieving world? They don't use the word sin, do they? Sin is not called sin in the world today. It is called what? We, We have every number of terms. We say, oh, well, you know, you just have faults you have flaws, you have areas of growth, shortcomings, you just made a mistake. But we don't call it sin. We have this toned down language to describe evil behavior. We even have these broader categories of people where we say, well, you're not a sinner, you're just a narcissist. You're just a sociopath. I mean, those are things bad enough, right? Or maybe, you know, you're just not really responsible for your sin. You just have a chemical imbalance in your brain. You're not not at fault. You're simply a victim in a victimless society. So we don't call sin, sin anymore. What about the gospel? People don't not followers of Jesus Christ anymore. Does not mean that they don't have their own gospel of salvation. It does not mean that they are not disciples of someone or something. Today, in our culture, people are disciples of the environmental movement. Disciples of the social justice movement. Disciples of CRT, critical race theory. Disciples of the cryptocurrency revolution. People are searching for their own sense of wanting to transform themselves outside of God with a sense of personal resurrection. Um, I'll change the way I look. I'll, I'll become a new me. I'll call myself by a different pronoun. I'm not that person. I'm this person. I'll reinvent myself. in in cyberspace, in the metaverse, in in the technological um, avatars. And there is a sense that the world outside of God is still seeking a transformation, still seeking to be disciples, still seeking their own sense of gospel salvation. What about the word righteousness? People are not seeking the righteousness of God in our culture. They believe they can find it through meditation, positive thinking, the wellness movement has replaced the pursuit of holiness. Wholeness has replaced holiness in our culture today. And so when we think of law, sin, gospel, and righteousness, it's a tremendous contrast with what the Bible is talking about in Romans 6 and 7 versus how our society thinks today. In the morning service, uh, Chris Carandang had a book in his hand, and the title was called Radical. It's written by a Christian pastor. It's talking about living radical life for Jesus Christ. The most radical thing that you can do right now with your life is not simply being at a church service during Super Bowl Sunday. The most radical thing that you, you can be committed to right here this afternoon is to say this. I am going to commit myself to believing in, trusting in, being convicted by, and seeing God's holy law as good and righteous because a lawless society does not. That's a radical thing. It's a radical thing to say, I'm going to try and obey God's law and lead it, have it lead me to God amidst a lawless society. That's radical. If you want to be a radical, non conforming person, it is to say, I will understand the importance and I will take action to repent of my sin amidst an evil society. That's a radical thing to do. A radical thing to do is to say, I will believe in the exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ. There is one Lord, there is one Savior, and I follow him as Lord in a post-Christian age. That's a radical thing to do. It's radical to say, I will submit myself to the Holy Spirit for him to create the righteousness of Christ in an unspiritual, zombie like spiritual culture. That's a radical thing for you to do. So, just by virtue of what we're going to talk about today law, sin, gospel, righteousness in Romans chapter six and seven, you have to understand this is not simply, okay, well, I've heard some of this before. You're just kind of reminding me why. Not. You have to understand to believe what we're going to talk about today is your declaration of being a radical nonconformist. To the spirit of the age. Most people. Out there. In the street. Relatives. Coworkers. Schoolmates. Do not believe what we're going to talk about today. The majority, vast majority of them don't. And so. This is a radical thing that Paul is talking about. He was talking about this to the Roman church in the first century. It's true for us here in the 21st century. And so let's take a look at this. We're not going to go verse by verse through chapter six, uh, second part of it and all of chapter seven, we're going to take this by theme. So we're going to go a little bit out of order. And uh, we're going to take a look at some of the main themes related to these four uh, categories and terms. All right, let's go to the first law. The law is there to reveal God's righteousness and to reveal our unrighteousness. That is the primary purpose of God's law. Uh, in Romans chapter 2, earlier on, we're on Romans chapter 6 and 7. In Romans chapter 2, Paul talked about this. He said in Romans 2 that um, if you are an unbeliever, he said in Romans 1 chapter and as well in chapter 2, he said if you're an unbeliever, you already know that God exists. God has already given you enough evidence, and your conscience. Uh, bears witness to this, that that God has imprinted uh, the need to obey his moral law. And so if you die, Paul says in Romans 2, as an unbeliever, what is going to happen is God will use his law and say, this is my law, maybe you didn't hear the Bible, that's okay, you had enough, uh, uh, I give you enough evidence, no, I exist, and what my general requirements were for holy living, let's just judge you by your own standard. And it says in Romans 2, That law will cause your conscience to alternately excuse you as well as to accuse you. And based upon that, you'll be guilty. He says in Romans 2, if you're a Jew, you've been given the law. You've been given the traditions. You've been given uh, the Christian narrative. And so if you are a Jew who's been given that, but you die in unbelief in Jesus Christ. When you come before judgment in God, God will say, well, you were given the law, but you didn't obey it. And so that's enough to damn you. The law reveals God's righteousness and it reveals our evil. In Romans chapter 7, verse 7 through 12. Let's take a look at that. Romans chapter 7, verse 7 through 12. Paul says this, and notice how he's going to highlight the goodness of God's law, but then how God's law, once he knew it, made him aware of his sin. Verse 7, what shall we say? Now, the law is sin? By no means. Yet, yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, kill, it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Now, what is Paul saying? He's saying, yeah, before I knew God's law... I I still had sin, but I really wasn't completely aware of it. When I heard um, the scriptures, when Jesus Christ pointed out his righteousness to me, I then became aware of it. And now that I was aware of my sin, I want to rebel against God's law. And Paul says, you know, the law is not bad you know he was thinking that some of the romans at the roman church would say well if the law makes me aware of sin then the law must be bad and paul says no 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 the law is good he says again look at verse 13 so the law that's god's law not civil law but the god's law is holy the commandment is holy and righteous and good so when you when god reveals his law to you what the bible is saying is by nature it's coming from god it's holy and righteous and good because it reveals the will of a holy and righteous, good God. But it also is holy and righteous and good because it reveals to us what? The darkness of our own heart. And that is a good thing. Why? Because you don't want to live in ignorance. When you're aware of your sinful need for Christ, you can at least do something about it by giving your life to Christ. And so just to Quickly summarize here. I kind of put this on a little bit of a chart here, and I'll I'll, I'll run through this. This is the general way you want to look at God's law. God's law. Follow me on this. Is righteous. God's law is righteous. God's law. uh, When you see the law that's referred to, it might uh, sometimes it refers to the whole of the Old Testament. Sometimes it refers to the Pentateuch, first five books of the um, of the Old Testament. Sometimes it, it. talks about the, uh, the Ten Commandments. It, it kind of means a lot, all of that altogether. Uh, but then in the New Testament, it's also referring to the New and the Old Testament. So it kind of depends. But the general gist is what God reveals through his word is his law. And so that's righteous. Now, follow me on this. There's two counterfeits that have plagued humanity throughout human history. On one side, there's been a counterfeit to God's law of the law of human works. The law of human works goes like this. Um, I don't know God's law, and or maybe I know, and I don't care. I have my own human works law. I'll just, uh, I'll tell you what, God, I'll, I'll just determine what's right and wrong based upon what I think. If I'm a better person than that guy, then I'm a good person. If I'm worse than that worst person, then I'm bad. But I'll determine in my own way of what's lawful and what's not. And I'll kind of just make up my mind that, if I just do enough good things that I think are good enough for you, God, then that'll be good enough. And the Bible actually condemns that. Uh, Paul condemned the church at Galatia in part because they were slipping into this human works law and getting away from the gospel of grace. And that actually leads to spiritual death, at least damnation and hell and the wrath of God upon us in eternity. Because it basically says we're good enough without God. But then there's this other counterfeit on the other side. And that's the law of false religion. So if you come to uh, a Christian church, a Buddhist background, you know, I need to just do my best to write speech, right thinking, right relationship, all these noble truths, right? And the, the, uh, the, uh, fourfold path to salvation of getting rid of evil desire so that you can live in harmony with others in harmony with the cosmic forces of the world and just feel nothing. Paul is saying that, and the Bible is saying that that's false too. It leads to death. So God's law, which is contained in his word alone is righteous and it's righteous because it reveals our unrighteousness. The good news of the gospel is that Christ came as the fulfillment of God's law. That's what he said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. He says, I have not come to abolish the law, but what? To fulfill the law. And so anyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ, Christ comes to live inside of them. He breathes life into their soul. The Holy Spirit takes residence, and so when God looks at us, he sees God's his son's perfect perfection and fulfillment of his law as God father. And he says, you know, my son has fulfilled the law. He lives in you. His spirit, the Holy spirit empowers you to live out um, of the life of Christ. And that is the fulfillment of the law. It's beautiful. And that's why Paul said in Romans seven, that he delights to know God's law now through Christ. That is essentially the teaching of the law here. Let's go on to the second. Sin. Sin is something that is spiritually alive. Sin is something that's spiritually alive. We talk about sin in different terms. If you've been around church, you've heard uh, sin referred to in, when we look at the Psalms, when we look at the prophets in the Old Testament, when we look at the Gospels, when we look at the epistles in the New Testament, sin is referred to in the following ways. When you sin, it is missing the mark. How many of you have heard that phrase before? Many of you. It's like the Greek word where, uh, where an archer would pull back a, uh, an arrow, aim at a target, and he would miss the target. We miss the target of God's law through our sinful actions. Sin is described as missing the mark. Sin is also described as a trespass. God sets a boundary. We step over it. We're not supposed to. As iniquity, sinfulness. It's described as a burden. When you sin, there's this burden upon your back, this weight upon your soul. Sin is described as a stain. It stains your soul. Like... um It makes it black and not pure. And finally, sin is described as a debt that you owe to God that you cannot pay. Part of the reason why Jesus talks so much about money, someone owed someone else money in the New Testament, is because by the New Testament times, the uh, concept of sin as a debt had become predominant in the first century. Missing the mark, trespass, iniquity, burden, stain, debt—we've all heard that. That's all true when we talk about theology of sin. What we miss is that sin is also something that is spiritually alive. It is something that is living inside of us. It is not just an intellectual exercise of us, of us not doing something God wants. Let's look at some of these scriptures here. In Romans chapter six, verse twenty. Paul says that sin enslaves you. I want you to look at these, what Paul himself says, only in Romans 6 and 7. These are all living descriptions of sin. Chapter 7, verse 5, he talks about sin as the flesh. The flesh is something that's living, that arouses our evil passions, that produces the fruit of death. Chapter 7, verse 6, sin is something that takes us captive uh, verse 8, chapter 7, it seizes the opportunity in our lives. Chapter 7, verse 9, it comes alive within us. Chapter 7, verse 11, it deceives and it kills. Chapter 7, verse 20, it dwells within us. Chapter 7, verse 21, evil lies close at hand. Chapter 7, verse 23, it's making me captive. You can go all the way back to the The first book of the Bible in Genesis chapter 4 in Cain and Abel. You know the story. Uh, Cain kills his brother Abel because he's jealous of him. But before he does, God warns Cain and he says, um, Sin is crouching at your door, Cain. Be careful. It wants to dominate you. Now, my question to you is this. When you look at uh, Romans six, Romans chapter seven, all of these living descriptions of sin, do you come to the conclusion and say, "Well, uh, that, that's just metaphor. That's just allegory, Pastor Chris. He doesn't really mean that. I don't think so. Are you going to tell me that our universe, the Bible says that God is alive, Jesus is alive, the Holy Spirit is alive, God's word is alive nature is alive. Human beings are alive. Satan is alive. Demons are alive. Angels are alive. Are you going to tell me that sin is the only thing that doesn't have a spiritually living dimension to it? Why would we call it the flesh? Why would we call it the sin nature? A, A nature and flesh are things that are alive. Let's even take it beyond, let, let's even just step outside the Bible for a moment. Just let me ask you a question, right? In your own personal experience, when you experience greed, hatred, lust, pride, do you feel them? Or is it just simply an objective Kind of indifferent experience where you intellectually acknowledge I have committed greed and sin and lust. And it's just a mental thing with me. No, it's not. You feel it. You feel greed. We feel anger. We feel lust. We feel pride welling up inside of us. And why? It's because sin is spiritually alive. You you can feel yourself getting angry. Something almost taking control of you. And if you continue to give into it, it's almost like you start saying things. Your face scrunches up and your voices rise and you get out of control. And that sin that's come to life inside of you. It's not just, I missed the mark. I I went across the trespass, although it is that there's something more fundamental and core going on here. In chapter seven of Romans, verse 17 and 20 and 23, Paul uses a word for sin, oikeo, oikeo, chapter seven, verse 17, 20, and 23. And o, o, oikeo was something that to describe sin that, that meant sin that meant something that inhabits us, something that lives within us with no intention of leaving, that to remain there. That's how sin was described. And so this is how Paul described his relationship to sin that came alive in him. Let's go to chapter 7. Stay there in verse 15 through 20. In 15 through 20, the apostle Paul says this. uh, Sin was coming. And you know, some people, they, uh, they say, oh, was Paul really a believer when he talked about this? Was he an unbeliever? He's talking about his former life as an unbeliever, but he was talking about his life as a believer. That's the overwhelming consensus, the right interpretation. And so Paul says here, in chapter 7 verse 15 following this is his experience of sin coming alive in him and i want you to listen to this and ask yourself can i relate can i find myself in what paul is saying as he's describing his own description of his struggle with sin and he's a super apostle saying this right verse 15 for i do not understand my own actions for i do not do what i want but i do the very thing i hate. Now if i do what i do not want, i agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer i who do it, but what? Sin that dwells within me. Something living. Verse 18 for i know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. He's not talking about Christ, that's he's good, but he's talking about his flesh. Sin does not go away when you come to be a follower of Jesus Christ. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You are in a war. You and I are in a war with something that's alive. The only difference, guys, between us as believers and an unbelieving world is that Romans chapter 6 says we're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer completely in bondage. An unbeliever does not have an option to be freed from sin. That's what he's saying in Romans 6. You're a slave to sin, but submit yourself to a sla- as a slave of righteousness because you are in Christ. You were formerly a slave to sin, Romans 6. In Romans 7, he's saying, but still Even though I'm submitting myself to Christ and his spirit and his righteousness, I still struggle. There's times when I don't do what I want to do. And the things I want to do, uh, I I do the things that I hate to do. Because sin can spring to life within me. And so he says this in, in chapter 7, verse 24. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, Paul was from Tarsus. Tarsus is in modern-day Syria. And uh, commentators have noted that not far away from Tarsus, where Paul was born, there's some ancient tribes that were around the area. And one of their rituals that Paul would have been aware of having been born in Tarsus was that these, some of these ancient tribes, when they caught and convicted a murderer among them, they would take the victim's body of that murderer, tie the dead victim's body to the convicted murderer's body, tie it to them until the convicted murderer died. It's a terrible way to die. Having a body strapped to you until all its decay comes upon you, get sick or you just die of a heart attack and rigor mortis sits in. So you're going to be like this and a horrible way to die. But, but that, body of death that was strapped to the life of a murderer until the murderer died. uh, There's a good chance Paul had that in mind when he's talking about the body of death. Who will save me from this? Paul saw his flesh as a zombie that was literally springing to life in his soul. Now the zombie no longer enslaved Paul. Christ was greater than the zombie, but the zombie in his unredeemed areas of his life in terms of the things that he still struggled with in sin and that we do too, would occasionally come to life. And it comes to life within us too. Ask yourself, why has the metaphor, the cultural pop cultural metaphor of the zombie become so prevalent here in the latter part of the 20th century, in the first part of the 21st century, here in the West? Why the zombie? You know, why not Bigfoot? Why not the Abominable Snowman? You know, why, why zombies or vampires? You could say the same thing about vampires, right? How many movies, television shows, books are out there about zombies and vampires over the past, you know, 50 years? The first um, zombie um, movie, I think, was like from the 1920s in Germany. Um, this doctor had cast a spell on this beautiful woman it was like a silent black and white movie and uh, he because he wanted her love and then she just goes blank and then he looks at her and he goes oh i don't i'm so sad because your beauty means nothing without your soul being there anymore and she was basically a mindless zombie but why such a prevalence today now you could say well pastor chris there's a sociological explanation for why we're so fascinated with zombies here in the west today it is because well um, the zombie represents an overall, uh, th- there's this zombie uh, zeitgeist in our culture. It's a, there's, this, there's this ethos where uh, we have a sense of hopelessness in our society. And so therefore, the zombie represents hopelessness. Or we, we are so isolated through our technology. Zombies are isolated. That's why we like zombies. Or we live in such a violent culture. Therefore, we, you know, zombies are violent. Or we have this sense of apocalyptic endgame, you know, Uh, To society, people living off on their own in caves because they think the world's going to come to and therefore it's on. Now, you could say that that's why we have such a fascination with zombies. The Bible, I think Paul would say something different. What they would say is the reason why. There is such a pop cultural fascination today. Is because what is coming out in the pop culture is a reflection of what is happening currently in the human soul. The people are dead spiritually on the inside they're searching for life people have become spiritually ravenous to look for anything that will make them feel anything that will make them feel alive to consume things consume people with a voracious appetite why is because the living god doesn't live inside of their dead soul and so there is no one to save them from the body of death that is within them thus It comes out in the metaphor of the zombie in our culture. It used to be aliens, right? Now it's zombies. Third, gospel. From death to new life. From from death to new life. And so into our inability to keep God's law that convicts us of our sin, the sin that comes to life inside of us. Um, Oh, you know what? Um, Let's go back to that previous scripture. I want to say one last thing about sin. When Paul says here, I do not do what I should and the things that I do are the things that I should not do. This should be encouraging in some way to you as a Christian. If you can relate to this, one of the signs of Christian maturity is that you're actually struggling against sin. You're aware of sin. Actually, the more, follow me on this, the more spiritually mature you get as a Christian, the more spiritually aware you are of sin. The more mature you grow in Christ, what should be happening simultaneously is you are growing in righteousness, follow me, but you are also growing in what? Your awareness of your sin. It's like a baby, like a child. A child is not aware of all their evil or the evil in the world, but as they get older, they're more aware of evil in their life and evil in the world. And hopefully that they grow up to be, you know, God-honoring people. I was having a conversation with Darcy the other day, and we were talking exactly about this. And I just said to her, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, you want to be aware of is there's a good thing of what you're struggling with in sin, Darcy, because it's a sign of your maturity that you even care, that you're even aware of it, that it actually bothers you. And you just want to be careful that um, you don't impinge upon God's grace in your life, that you're not the Savior Jesus Christ is, but for you to be aware of it is a very good thing. So the struggle is not only just real. The struggle is not just real. The struggle can also be a sign of Christian maturity. This is Paul saying this in Romans chapter 7. Okay, let's go on. Gospel, from death to new life. Let's look at two scriptures here. Um, in John, uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 2 and 4, and Romans chapter 6... Verse 23, let's take a look at it. Uh, Pastor Mike preached on this passage a little bit earlier on. I'm just going to mostly read this. In Romans chapter 6, verse 2 through 4, Paul says this, uh, How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? For we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, follow this, we too might walk in newness of life. We are baptized into Christ's death, we are raised with him we are to no longer live as we lived before in verse uh, chapter 6 verse 23 you skip on down he says for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of god is what eternal life in Christ Jesus our lord it's beautiful it's beautiful see where he says eternal life there in Verse 23, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Eternal life is not just in eternity. It starts now. See, we are promised eternal life in heaven with God and God's people through our faith in Jesus Christ. But eternal life is not just for eternity. Eternal life is given to you now with the promise of eternity. The eternal life of Christ comes into your life now. Otherwise, we don't have that life. And so there's an eternal amount of spiritual life that's given to us in Christ. It's not like a, you know, I drink a glass of water. It goes empty. I got to fill it up. A lot of Christians see their Christian walk there. I'm empty. I need more of God. It's not like that. Actually, it's the opposite. You are already given a spring of living water, eternal spring of living water, Jesus says in the gospel of John. Our only job is to get is to confess the sin, to repent of the sin, to embrace the righteousness, to have our minds renewed so that the spirit of God that lives in us is no longer grieved and quenched. We can connect with the Holy Spirit that is already sufficient and living in us. And so how do we look at the idea of sin and gospel here? Um, when When I used to speak at youth camps and youth retreats, I used to give a message on Romans chapter 7. I used to use the illustration of uh, the movie Spider Man. This is the original Spider Man movies with Tobey Maguire. And uh, in Spider Man 3, this is the one where he uh, he fights Venom and the Sandman. Okay, these, these movies, I don't know how many, this one movie is probably like 15 years old or so. And, uh, I used to show a clip from Spider-Man 3. And if you are familiar with this movie, there's this kind of alien venom, um, uh, kind of monster. And what he does is he inhabits human beings. He comes, you know, to coat them with his, um, and, and he looks kind of like a black spider, but he basically makes them into a monster because he is a monster venom. And so Tobey Maguire, who plays Peter Parker, Spider-Man, he, um, he kind of comes into encounter this Venom. But the thing about it, Venom is he makes you feel very powerful, you know, and, and he, he's just, you're just a lawless human being. And there's a scene in the movie where Peter Parker is sitting on, um, at the top of a church. It's raining, and he's sitting at the top of a church, and Venom is all over him as, as, his, as his Spider-Man, I suppose, costume, alien costume. And he just comes to this conclusion. He says, I don't want to live this life anymore. And so he, he comes down to the church and um, starts ringing the church bell. And apparently, when the bell rings, the venom uh, alien goes wild. And he, he starts to, And so, as the bell rings, you see Peter Parker not wanting this life anymore. So he's trying to rip off the venom all the And it's just a really grotesque scene. Venom's trying to suck onto him, he's trying to rip off venom. And eventually, uh, he gets out of venom. And venom goes to another host. But the next scene is you see Peter Parker showering, being cleansed. And, you know, it's a a safe scene. There's nothing. They're not showing anything they're not supposed to. But he's just sitting there and he's being cleansed with water. And I would show that scene to illustrate what Paul is really talking about in Romans 6 and 7. Sin is like venom. And it's like fused to your soul. And you can become like the other, like Brock, who was Peter Parker's Parker's rival reporter, and he kind of embraced Venom. That's the unbeliever in the story. Or you can be like Peter Parker and say, you know, you can go to the church and say, I don't want this life anymore. I don't want this thing dominating me me anymore. And the bell kind of represents Christ, where it starts to disintegrate Venom. And the waters of baptism that cleanses Peter Parker off are the baptism of christ is talked about here in romans chapter 6 now there's parts of venom that are still a part of us we understand that but in general that that's true and so this is the gospel the gospel is verse 4 of chapter 6 we have might walk in newness of life that we may have eternal life in christ jesus Let's go on to our fourth phrase here today, righteousness, life in the spirit, life in the spirit. This is what Paul means in Romans chapter six, verse four, that we just read, we might walk in newness of life. This is what he means that we just read a few moments ago in chapter 6, verse 23, that we may have eternal life in Christ Jesus. What is this newness of life? What is this eternal life that we have in Christ? In chapter 6, verse 19, and chapter 7, verse 6, let's take a look at these two scriptures. This is the newness of life that Paul's talking about here. Verse 19, he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. He's talking to believers at this point. For just as you once presented, once in your past as an unbeliever, as you once presented your members, that's yourselves, as slaves to impurity, that's you embracing venom, and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. You have a choice now as a Christian. I have a choice. We're to present ourselves, our members, to Christ to be slaves of righteousness, and he will sanctify us through that. Chapter 7, verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died. To that which held us captive. Remember God's law. Shows us our unrighteousness. He holds us captive. So that we. And and sin holds us captive. So that we may serve. In the new way of what? The spirit. The spirit. And not in the old way. Of the written code. This is the newness of the Christian life. The newness of the Christian life. The walking in the newness of life. Chapter 6 verse 4. The. New way of the Spirit, chapter 7, verse 6, is through the Spirit. See, when you look at these verses, I want you to notice something. Chapter 6 says, if you're a believer, you now present your members. You present yourself to God. Notice that. That's an active act. I, Chris... I'm going to present myself to God for the spirit to work in my life to then produce righteousness. This is something that's active. You cannot overcome sin simply by saying, I'm just going to stop sinning. You have to actually present yourself to God for that to happen. The best way to get rid of an old, unhealthy, sinful passion is not simply to say, I will just stop the old, unhealthy, sinful passion. Instead, what you should be doing is, I will now present myself to embrace a new, healthy, spiritual passion. You cannot just stop something and then defeat it. You've got to actually present yourself to the newness of life in Christ in order to defeat the thing that you want to stop. You gotta go to stop. You cannot just stop to stop. And so, when he says, present your members as slaves to righteousness, this is what he's saying. You have to actively move forward in order to stop something else. Now, again, sin is no longer your master. He's not talking about that, he's talking about. On a day-to-day, we are to actively pursue the way of the Spirit. And so the question that we want to end on here is this. What does it mean to walk in newness of life? What does it mean to walk in the way of the Spirit? Well, we walk in the newness of life. We submit ourselves to the Spirit in the following ways. When we read the Word of God, we are interacting with the spirit of god and the spirit of god sanctifies us this is how this is what we're doing to present ourselves as members to righteousness leading to sanctification when you everything i'm about to mention the spirit is at work in when i read the word of god the holy spirit is at work through this this, is, this book is inspired by the holy spirit he's going to speak to me he's going to sanctify me as i read and meditate and obey it the Spirit is at work producing sanctification and righteousness as I, as I focus on God's Word. Number two, the Spirit is at work when you pray. Bible says the Spirit makes intercession for you. Romans chapter 8. So when I pray, I'm actually interacting with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sanctifying me as I pray. Repentance. When I choose to repent of my sin, the Holy Spirit is at work to forgive me and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. When I praise God through song, praise God with, with words of thanksgiving, the book of, um, of Ephesians and Colossians says that the, the spirit is at work. Ephesians says in Ephesians 5, the spirit is at work through my praise and thanksgiving. When I fellowship with God's people, they spur me on to love and good deeds I do the same. The Spirit is at work, producing sanctification in your life. When I observe the sacraments, I choose to get baptized. The Holy Spirit was at Jesus' baptism. When I choose to get baptized, the Holy Spirit is at work. When I receive communion, the Holy Spirit is at work. The word, prayer, repentance, praise, fellowship with the body of Christ, the sacraments, these are Key core ways that the spirit is at work in our lives. And this is how he produces righteousness. So, you guys, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, um, I want to close with this. Um, Law, sin, gospel, righteousness. We want to take away from this time by saying, I have been reminded that God's law exists in my life to reveal to me that God is holy, righteous, righteous and good, and I am not, and that's a good thing. I am reminded that sin is something that is not just causes me to break a commandment, something I've got to deal with that's spiritually alive in me. I am reminded that the gospel of Jesus Christ puts to death sin. I've been raised to newness of life so that I may live through God's righteousness as I submit to the work of the Spirit in my life. And that, in a core nutshell, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, you should thank yourself. You guys, be, thank, thank the Lord rather. <laughs> hey, good job. Uh, you should thank the Lord because most of the world does not believe this. Many people have not heard it. Some people are being led astray in churches that don't teach this, but you are. And so never take this for granted. Oh, yeah, these are just, you know, fundamental doctrines. These are fundamental doctrines that are radical. These doctrines are radical in the eyes of an unbelieving world. Okay? So let's pray together. Fathers, we close together. May you solidify, sanctify Um, These great truths of the Christian faith. Paul um, labored intensely to imprint upon the lives of the Roman church. May that be the case with us. May these core doctrines provide the foundations for our faith um, as followers of Christ in the kingdom of God, Lord, so that we may endure to the end. We may prevail against uh, an unbelieving world around us, Lord. And have a message of hope and goodness and love and faith and newness of life, of salvation for um, a lost world around us, Lord. And so pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.